This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Are you guys ready to study God's Word together this morning? If you'll turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. This morning we're going to study the parable of the rich fool. Now prayerfully, the rich fool is not what you would want your euphemism to be. (laughs) That's not what you would want your nickname to be this morning. Uh, Let me set this up for you. So in Luke chapter 12... By this time in Luke's gospel or Luke's biography of Jesus, Jesus had gained a following, a fairly large following. As a matter of fact, in Luke 12 verse 1, Luke writes that tens of thousands of people were following Jesus and learning from him by this time. And some of those people were actively following him in very fervent belief. Others of them were convinced by the Pharisees that he was a threat to orthodoxy and had therefore rejected him. And still others were somewhere in the middle. They were still sifting through his teaching. And they were at least favorable enough to what he was saying to continue listening to him. And that's where we find the ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. And so now what's going to happen in Luke chapters 12 and 13... Jesus is going to give a long sermon calling these people to saving faith, yes. But also he's going to preach about the difficulties of the kingdom. And he's going to preach about the difficulties of Christian discipleship. And what Jesus was ultimately doing there, and what he's ultimately doing today through this, is calling his people to count the cost of Christian discipleship. That there is a cost to following him. And so what he's going to do in chapter 12 is he's going to give two basic warnings. One of them I'm just going to mention in passing to let you know what it is. And the other one is going to be the focus of our text this morning. And these two warnings are strongly worded warnings. They were strong warnings to those in the first century. And they're going to be strong warnings for you and for me today as we study. He wants us to beware of them as well. And here they are. If you look at verse 1, here here are the, the foundational warnings from Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Number one, beware of false religion. Beware of false religion. In verse... Uh, In verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people would gather together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, so these were the people who believed, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Basically, in 30 seconds here, the Pharisees were the religious elite of Jesus' day. You think about priests, you think about pastors, you think about the religious group of people that, the, that culture would look to and say that those are the people that, I, that I'm looking to for spiritual guidance. Those are the people who've got it all together. Well, this was a group of people in Jesus' day who that, that was their reputation, but Jesus called them out over and over again for their hypocrisy because they were putting all these weighty demands and oppressive teachings on the people that they themselves weren't willing, in Jesus' words, to lift a finger to actually help the people in doing. And what Jesus is warning here, it's stark, is that there are people who speak of me and speak about my Father, 
but they don't know all that which they speak of. And so beware of false religion. This is very important for us today too, but this is not the primary focus of our text. A second foundational warning from Jesus in this chapter, which is the focus of our text this morning, not only beware of false religion, but also beware of false riches. Beware of false riches. You get down to verse 15. And so we'll set it up this way. We're actually going to start in verse 13. And then I'll stop in 15. So Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching. And then someone in the crowd rudely interrupts. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Pause. As if you or I ever have the right to tell Jesus to tell anybody anything, right? As if. Okay, verse 14. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let me just stop there. Do you see where in verse 1 and also in verse 15, Jesus is warning us? Beware. Beware. Be on guard. Be on guard against false religion. Be on guard against false riches. Now, now Jesus avoids getting into the dispute. He, He avoids getting into an argument. He avoids getting into a dispute that was not his to get into. And as always, Jesus doesn't allow a teachable moment to just pass by. This man lobbed Jesus a spiritual softball. And Jesus doesn't whiff. I mean, Jesus hits it out of the park. He doesn't swing or miss, swing and miss. Now, I want you to remember the purpose of the parables. The purpose of the parables is Jesus uses everyday common life to teach eternal principles about God and his kingdom. Now, not only remember the the purpose of the parables, but also remember the personal nature of the parables. What Jesus wanted these people to do is the same thing that Jesus wants you to do and wants me to do. He wants us to put ourselves into the story. And so I would challenge you today, put yourself in the story. What does this parable teach you about possessions, about money, about gratitude, about life, about God, and yes, about your own heart. So we're going to look a little bit deeper now, and we're going to read the parable that Jesus gives in response to this man's erroneous demand of Jesus. And so in verse 16, it picks up here. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This morning, we're going to see from this simple parable of Jesus some lessons in possessions. 
We're going to see lessons in possessions from Jesus' parable. We're going to see four big ones, and then we're going to look at some minor truths in the midst of all those. Here's the first big lesson in possessions that we see from Jesus' parable here. Number one, know that God is the source of all your resources. Know that God is the source of all your resources. Verse 16 says that the land of a rich man produced plentifully. There are no details of the man's labor, his toil, or his investment. Although inferred in here, I'm pretty sure he was probably a hard worker. But that's not in Jesus' parable here. Instead, it says the land produced plentifully. Now, I want you to see why I would say that God is the source of all your resources derived from this text. It says the land produced plentifully. Who causes the land to produce plentifully? Is it man or is it God? Well, you can say, well, maybe it's both. Well, let's follow that line of reasoning. So yes, the man can work hard. He can till the soil. He can plant the seeds. He can fertilize the soil. He can can pull the weeds out and, and then he can water. But there's one thing the man cannot do. He cannot make. The seeds grow. He can't make the crops be produced. And so yes, sure, there's hard work in life. But our hard work only gets us so far. God ultimately provides. God is ultimately the source. God is the one who is producing the land to be plentiful. And so I want you to see today that in this parable, God was the source of this man's blessings. God was the source of this man's bounty, just as God is the source of all yours today. But here's the challenge for this man. This man gave no recognition to God. Nowhere in this parable did he give recognition to God. No thanksgiving to God. No recognition that his crop came outside of his own hands and work. Instead, in Jesus' story, the man makes it very clear that everything is all about himself. How do we see that? I'm so glad you asked. Six times in this parable, we see the word I. And four or five more times, we see the words my or me. So for this man in Jesus' story, it's I, 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 me, Me, me. Perhaps you know someone like that in your life. Perhaps you know someone who it's always, it's I, 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 me, me, me. And you're thinking, there she goes again, you know, or there he goes again. But before we want to get so far into looking at someone else, perhaps you're that person. (laughs) Perhaps I'm that person this morning. It's all about me. It's all about I. It's what I do. It's what I have. You see, implicit in Jesus' teaching is his expectation that we acknowledge God as the ultimate provider of everything that we have. From the least of your possessions to the greatest of your possessions. And regardless of whether you are the poorest of poor in this room today, or whether you are upper middle class or even upper class and our socioeconomic ladders. God is the source of all of your resources, and He desires for you to acknowledge Him as that. And I wonder this morning, when was the last time, through prayer and introspection, you just simply acknowledged to God, God, 
Everything I have is from you. And I thank you for it. When was the last time you did that? I would encourage you to do that not only uh, sometimes, but regularly acknowledge that in your life. Now I want you to see a truth here in the midst of this principle that God is the source of all your resources. Here's the truth. It's more about attitude than amount. It's more about attitude than amount. Now, when we read this parable, we might be tempted to castigate this character simply because he is described as a rich man. You know, that's very popular in present day America, isn't it? It's very popular to go after the rich. If you're a politician and you want to get elected to anything, just castigate the rich and it'll probably get you a pretty good following. Now, I want you to know I have very little skin in this game. I'm a pastor and a missionary, and so rich would be the last word that people could use to describe me. Now, I'm very blessed, but rich is not a word that people could use to describe my level of income. So I have no skin in this game. But we need to understand that in in a present-day America where it's very popular to go after the rich for simply being rich, we need to know this. We can't fall into this temptation. Jesus is no more against the wealthy for simply having money than he is for the poor simply because they don't have much money. For Jesus, it's not about economics alone. It's always a matter of the heart. It's always a matter of the heart. It's how you view your wealth. It's how you view your possessions. It's the priority you place upon your resources. No pun intended this morning, but how much stock... Are you giving to what you have or what you hope to have when you graduate college one day? That's what Jesus is after in this parable. And this guy in his story failed the test miserably. I want to show you how the New Testament echoes this. If you'd fast forward over to the uh, book of 1 Timothy with me. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes about this. He addresses the love of money. He he addresses possessions and what it can do to our souls. And I want to make sure that we read the text correctly because there is an erroneous uh, recitation of the scriptures that we often recite that's just not in the text. But look at verse 9 with me in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Stop there for a moment. What Paul is actually saying here is that a materialistic culture, in a materialistic culture where money is everything and money is the pursuit of life and riches are the desires of your souls, Paul actually says that that desire, what does he say? Those desires can actually plunge people into ruin and destruction. Meaning that money is not a light manner for Jesus or the gospel writers or the New Testament apostles. They understand that these desires of the human heart can actually pull us away from Jesus himself and lead us to eternal ruin. And then look what he says in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now notice what Paul says and what he doesn't say. Paul does not say, as we erroneously say in modern day culture, that money is the root of all evils. 
We've heard that, haven't we? Not only have we heard that, we've recited that probably oftentimes in our lives. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture does not speak against money itself. The Scripture doesn't say it's the root of all evils. It says it's a root of many kinds of evils. And I believe if we look around our culture and even in our own lives, we would attest to that. And we would agree with that. It causes a lot of damage among people. But now let's bring it back to uh, the discussion at hand. When, when we don't recognize God as the ultimate provider of all we have, and we don't recognize that it is ultimately about the, the hearts and the, the attitude of our hearts and not the amount of our bank accounts, this can be the reality about us, and it can lead us to all different kinds of destruction and pangs. Instead, we should do what Paul says in verse 17 of chapter 6 as he goes on. And, and this is kind of in passing and talking about the rich, those who have resources, He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here's the picture. Resources, money, and possessions are uncertain. Paul just said it in verse 17, didn't he? It's uncertain. So it would be a fool's errand for you or for me to set our hopes on something that is uncertain. No matter what your savings account is, no matter what your portfolio may say, no matter what your salary may be, whether it's four digits, five digits, or six figures, right? Regardless of what it is, it would be erroneous for us. It would be a fool's errand for us to set our hope there. Instead, no matter what we have, whether it's very little or whether it's a lot, set our hopes on God. Set our hopes on God because He's the one who gives it. And since He's the one who gives it, when we enjoy what He's given, that actually honors God. So the first lesson in possessions that we learn in Jesus' parable this morning of the rich fool is to recognize that God is the source of all of your resources. Acknowledge Him as that today. But a second principle that we see in this parable is this. We are to be a wise manager of our resources. So be a wise manager of your resources or of your possessions. You look at verse 17. This man thinks to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Why? Because the land produced plentifully. Now there's nothing in this story that would imply that this man attained all of his possessions and all of his abundance through a dishonest means or on the backs of those who were less fortunate than him. This is one of the biggest uh, oppositions to the rich in present-day America, right? That we just assume that if someone's rich, they were either dishonest to get it Or B, they were just really ruthless and oppressive to those under them to be able to get to where they are. That's just kind of the cultural vernacular that we have. And we we can't always jump to that conclusion. There's nothing in this parable that would would assume that. And when we think about our own lives this morning, I would hope that no matter what your bank account says this morning, whether it's $482 or whether you have $40,000 in your checking account this morning or you have stocks worth hundreds of thousands, I don't know what your bank account is. I don't even know what you give. I never see that stuff. So I don't have any inside baseball there. But I would hope that regardless of what you have, 
or what I have, that we've achieved that level of wealth, that we've achieved those levels of resources in an honest way. Working hard, being honest, spending wisely, saving wisely, giving wisely. But here's why. We don't just do it to do it. Here's the why. It's because what we have doesn't belong to us. If you've tuned out for a moment, it would be a good time to tune back in. Here's a radical truth in the United States of America today. Your money is not your money. Your house ultimately is not your house. It doesn't matter that your name is on the account. It doesn't matter that the deed is in your name or has your family's name on it. Ultimately, what the Bible would teach us is whatever you have, possessions-wise or money-wise, it actually belongs to God. Because God is the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. The Old Testament teaches us that every piece of coin, every piece of gold, every piece of silver is His. And so what that means is that ultimately what you have has been given to you by God and you are a steward of that. You are a manager of it. It's as if God has taken His eternal riches and He has given you a piece of His eternal folio. And it's yours now to manage. And we can do one of three things with the money that he's given to us. There's basically three things we can do with it. We can spend it. We can save it. And we can give it. And what the Bible would want us to do, what God would want us to do, is to do all three of those things well. Regardless of your income. Do you hear me on that? Like There are going to be some of you in here this morning who are thinking, you know, I'm just dirt poor. I barely make $10,000 a year. This sermon's not for me. It is for you. And there are others of you in here who think that maybe because you have plentiful that this sermon may be a little bit harder on you. Regardless of where we're coming from, these instructions are for you. We are to spend well, we are to save well, and we are to give well. We have a responsibility to manage God's resources in a wise way. And so here's what I want to do. I want to challenge you with two, two challenges here. And hopefully and prayerfully this will be practical for you too. In response to what the rich fool did here. In a positive way. We should guard ourselves from saving too little. We should guard ourselves from saving too little. So obviously that doesn't apply to this man. I mean he saved a lot. We'll get there and just... A moment, But we also must guard ourselves from saving too little. The Bible teaches us over and over again, especially in the Proverbs, we're going to look at a couple in a moment, that we should prepare for the future financially. Now I understand that some of us get to do that, maybe in a more healthy sense, maybe in a more vibrant sense, more plentiful sense. But regardless of what our income levels are, we should prepare. And, and this is in... Uh, Direct response to what the scriptures teach us. Proverbs 13, 11 teaches us this. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. In other words, the Bible says you shouldn't be hoping for the lottery. You shouldn't be hoping that you're going to win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. 
in order to be able to save for the future. The Bible actually tells us that, that we should be gaining wealth or gaining resources little by little over a long period of time. That honors God. We're not going to just get rich quick. We're not going to amass our retirement overnight. We're not going to prepare for our kids' college fund in two years. That it's little by little being wisely and saving. Proverbs 13.22 honors those who would save. That proverb says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So the Bible would tell you that if you save and you invest wisely over the course of a lifetime, that that's wise. And the Bible affirms that. Now this is in direct contradiction to the way we live in 21st century Western world. Based on an analysis of government data, the average American household owes more than $7,500 in credit card debt alone. And a Bankrate.com study released a couple of years ago found that 76% of people living in America live paycheck to paycheck, with almost 30% of people living here having no savings at all. I don't want to be insensitive because I know that there are real financial hardships in this room today. And so it would be very tempting for you to hear what I'm saying today and, and hearing every single thing as just a zing to your heart. We have to apply this where we are today. We have to apply this to each of our circumstances. But by and large, painting with broad strokes, regardless of our income levels, you honor God when you save. Even if it's a $5 bill here and a $20 bill there, you honor God by saving, and so guard yourself from saving too little. And sometimes that means we just simply need to make some adjustments in our spending so that we'll spend well, and if we spend well, we can save well. Now, second guarding here is to guard yourself from saving too much. So let's get back to the parable of the rich fool. So here's his indictment, right? It's not that he saved. It's not that he was preparing for a rainy day. It's not that he was preparing for the future in a responsible way, which Jesus, of course, would have affirmed. It's that he was saving too much. Look at verse 19. Look at the attitude. Remember we said it's about attitude, not amount. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Where's his hope? Is his hope in God? No, his hope is in the uncertainty of riches, and Jesus rebukes him for it. Jesus rebukes him for it. I don't want you to miss this. Verse 19 is the, is the thesis statement. It is the theme. It's the climax of this parable, because here you see the underlying challenge. What this guy had done in Jesus' story is he had built a wealth for himself. He had built goods for himself in such a way where he said to himself, I am self-sufficient. I have no needs. God hasn't even given me what I have. And I have, I have supplied my own life for all time. I am good. I'm self-sufficient. I need no one else. Is this not the American dream in the American way? And let's make it even more practical for us. Is this not one of the primary heartbeats of New Englanders? 
New England, although there's a lot of deep poverty in Lowell, when you look at New England at large, it is one of the wealthiest areas in all of the country. And do you think it's by accident that this is one of the wealthiest areas of the country and one of the lowest populations of Bible-believing Christians in the country? It's because New Englanders, New Englanders at large have bought their own way. They've worked hard. They've been educated. It's one of the highest educated places in the country. We have everything we need and more. I'll call upon God when I need Him for something, when I go through a crisis. But I've worked hard to get what I have. Jesus rebukes the rich fool. He rebukes him because of his, un, his hope being in the uncertainty of riches. It's his primary indictment. And there seems to be a caution here against having all of these resources just to have them. He's no longer dependent. He's no longer working. Did you see that? He just says, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God has wired us for work. But what is one of the greatest hopes of the American Win the lottery so that you can quit your job and sip drinks with umbrellas in it by the pool, right? But God's designed us for work. He's no longer dependent. He's no longer working. He's just living selfishly. One of my favorite scriptures in the Old Testament is Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. And I believe that it so speaks to this parable The writer of Proverbs in in chapter 30 says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful, needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Here's what I believe the scriptures teach us this morning. I believe where God wants us is He wants us to be responsible men and women. He wants us to work hard. He is honored by your working hard. He's honored by the sweat of your brow. Um, He is honored actually when your job is stressful and you persevere and work through that. You honor God by doing that. You honor God by earning a paycheck. You honor God by taking that paycheck and providing for yourself and your family and then saving responsibly and then giving, which we're going to talk about in a moment. You honor God by doing all of that. And he wants you to do all three of those things well. But there is this line where I have to ask myself the question. I ask myself these questions very often. Am I operating in a way financially that demonstrates responsibility for the future? So I'm not just spending so frivolously and living for the day that I'm forgetting that there's a rainy day down the road that I need to be providing for. That's only the side. While at the same time asking myself the question, am I also operating in a way that demonstrates dependence upon God rather than my own security? Am I operating in such a way that I'm spending and saving and giving in a way that is demonstrating faith before others Where when I see a need, I will meet it. And I'm not just banking so much up into storehouses where it's just bursting through the seams and I just have all of this stuff just to have it for a rainy day that may never come. When there are real needs, real opportunities, 
and real experiences today that I can take my resources and both provide and enjoy life with. You've got to find where that balance is. I can't tell you where that is. But there is a point where we've probably saved too much. It seems that Jesus is teaching us that in this parable. So we need to recognize that God is the giver of all of our resources here. We've also got to recognize that we need to be wise stewards and managers of those resources. Guard ourselves from saving too little. Guard ourselves from saving too much. And then thirdly, recognizing this lesson in possessions from Jesus, that he wants us to be a lavish giver of our resources. So congregation today, be a lavish giver of your resources. Look at verse 20. Jesus rebukes him. Fool. Which, by the way, do you know where else we see the word fool? We see it in Psalm 14. When the psalmist writes, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So what does Jesus do here in verse 20? He says that if you're a person who's putting all of your hope on the uncertainty of riches, and you're just storing up all this stuff just to store it up, you're no different than an atheist in my book. Because the man who says there is no God, he's a fool. And the person who just stores up stuff just to store it up for your own self-sufficiency, you're a fool too. That's indicting this morning, is it not? He says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now here's another inference in Jesus' parable this morning. What is Jesus inferring in in that question, whose will they be? It's a rebuke for not sharing. It's a rebuke for not giving. It's a rebuke for hoarding. And being so self-focused and so self-sufficient that you just exist for me, myself, and I. And Jesus rebukes him for that. Here is God's spiritual physics, brothers and sisters. And you see this in your notes. Number one, God provides for you. And we've already looked at that. Everything you have is from God. Your boss may sign the paycheck, but the resources come from him, from God. God provides for you. And not only does he provide for you, I want you to see in Ephesians chapter 1, the way in which God provides for you. In verses 7 and 8 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses, according to the riches of of his grace. So out of the riches of his grace, God gives to you which he lavished upon us, Paul says. And so putting it in the present tense, today, brother and sister, God is lavishing his blessings upon you. He's lavishing them out of the abundance, out of the riches of his grace. So picture this. So picture God having these storehouses of grain and blessings and resources and they're just bursting out the ceiling and instead of hoarding them like the rich fool does, God lavishes them upon his people. Here's the truth this morning, Christian. God doesn't give you discount blessings 
We love coupons, right? We love e-coupons. We love paper coupons. We love the 10% off, 20% off, save $5. Save 25 cents on a, on a, a gallon of orange juice. I mean, that's great. That would be being a good steward. So we love coupons. We love discounts. But aren't you thankful this morning that God doesn't give us discount blessings? You see, we're so wired to spare and to keep. And God is so wired to lavish and to bless. God provides for you every day. Just this morning, I thanked God. I said, God, thank you so much that you woke me this morning. You gave me the gift of life. Thank you, Father, that I have rhythm to my heart. I have breath in my lungs, and I have it because you give it to me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You, you put my feet on the floor, and then you took me into my uh, bathroom where I was able to use the bathroom, shower, and, and shave with water that I don't have to worry about getting sick from. And, and then you brought me out of that bathroom to my wardrobe where I have a walk-in closet full of clothes from which to choose for the day. And, and then you, you woke me up in a home where you put the roof over my head and, and you brought me downstairs where I was able to open up my cupboard where there's a whole pantry and freezer full of food. And, and then you put me in a vehicle which you've provided for me and you've got the gas in there where I can drive around. And then you brought me to the, you're going to bring me to this place where I have so many relationships. We're not to do this alone. But then, Father, thank you so much that my greatest need has been met in providing me Jesus so that I could be in right relationship with you. Guys, that's just a, that's just a 60 second version of just being thankful before God. God lavishly provides for us. And it is high time for us as believers in him to acknowledge that on a consistent basis. I will tell you, the more you acknowledge that, the greater your gratitude will be and the less your complaining will be. So here's the spiritual physic. God provides for you so that too, God provides through you. So, so here's the, the teaching point. So yes, God lavishes, God blesses. But for some of us, we love that, that fact so much. We want to stand under the silos and just say, Father, bless me indeed. Lavish your blessings upon me. Provide for me. Fill my storehouses. And for some of us, that's the end to which it points. But God wants us to be like Him. And so since God lavishly provides and blesses through His riches, now whatever He gives us, He wants us to lavishly give through the riches which He trusts entrusts to us. And that is a great spiritual physic for us to know this morning. You see, it's not that wealth is bad. Money is not evil. Yes, it's a root of many evils, but money alone is not evil. Jesus doesn't tell us in this parable that we need to be poorer people. He tells us that we need to be wiser managers and even more lavish givers of what he's given to us. To this, the great Presbyterian preacher James Boyce says, we are not called to relinquish things, 
but to use them under God's direction for the health and well-being of ourselves and our families, for the material aid to others and for promoting God's truth. I want to ask you a question this morning. uh, Let me say something and let me ask you a question. I have been so grateful for the lavish ways in which the members of Mill City give towards the ongoing ministry of our church. When you even get to see what we are doing right now by blessing the folk festival this week and providing for the pregnancy care center, for uh, partnering with the new church plant at UNH, for blessing New England students so that the gospel will be made known on other campuses across New England. And that's on top of all the other thousands that we give on a regular basis towards our global missions efforts here. That's what you're giving to when you give your offering here. You're not just, you're not giving money simply to pay for the electricity electricity and for the snacks in the back it goes towards that but that is such a small percentage of our budget you see when you partner with God you're a part of something so much bigger than yourself because you're partnering with our faith family to do something much bigger together than any one of us could do on our own but then our church is a part of something so much bigger than if it was just our church alone Because we're partnering with 400 other Southern Baptist churches across New England. And we're partnering with at least 5,000 international missionaries with the International Mission Board. Every dollar you give, a percentage of that, a percentage is going towards those things. So here's my question in response to those realities. Knowing that that's the posture of your church. And knowing that that's the command of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How will you continue to fervently give and lavish not only your money, but your time and your gifts and your energies for the sake of one another in the body and for the sake of his mission around the globe and even here locally on this campus in this city? Doesn't that make you excited? I mean, it jazzes me up. I'm telling you, like I... I just marvel before God all the time what He's using our congregation to do. But I want you to see that it has a theological underpinning from our Savior Himself. And we see it on full display here with the parable of the rich fool. Because He didn't get the fact that God lavishly gave Him so that He might lavishly give. He didn't get it. And Jesus rebukes Him for it. One last, one last principle I want you to see here before we get ready to close. The last thing I want you to see here is in verse 21. Live for God rather than your resources. Live for God rather than your resources. In conclusion, Jesus says this. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's negative, right? It's a negative statement. The person who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God, Jesus rebukes. So let's turn that upside down. Let's turn it on his head. So let's put it in the positive sense. So positively, what Jesus is saying is to lay up treasure for, for in heaven and be rich towards God. In other words, ultimately, as you live here on planet Earth, live for God and not your resources. 
You see, the person who's selfish, the person who hoards, the person who's constantly looking at the bottom line and not trusting God to provide through faith, that's a person who's living for resources and not for God. And we've established the fact that we need to be wise. I'm not going to rehash that. So don't overinterpret what I'm saying. Yes, we're to be wise. But the person who's so conscious about finances all the time and is laboring over them and worrying over them. And you can do this in one of two ways. Either you're a poor person who has very little and you're just constantly wishing for more so that you can either get something else you want or go up on the ladder. Or you're someone who has a lot and it's never enough. You just want to keep seeing it go higher and higher and higher. And you boast in your savings. And you try to you make yourself as secure and safe as possible. But regardless, I want you to see that both of those people are beginning to love money. And they have a love for money that can outweigh a love for God. I want you to see two things here. Number one, God desires your heart more than your money. There are those of you who give lavishly, but you don't give your heart. God may have your money, but he doesn't have your heart. There are others of you who God wants to get your heart, and when he gets your heart, he's also going to get your money, and he's going to become Lord there. But if you just flip back to Matthew 6 and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something along those lines, does he not? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, God wants your heart. Because see, when he has your heart, all these other things will fall into place. The rich fool didn't have a heart bent towards God. So Jesus rebukes him in the parable. But not only does he desire your heart more than your money, I want you to know this. He stretches your money more than you know. He stretches your money more than you know. I would encourage you to go home and read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. We don't have time to go there in our time this morning. But it's a beautiful account of how uh, very impoverished Christians in the early church sacrificially gave a lot of resources to other Christians who were in need in Jerusalem. And Paul commends them for that and talks about how their faithful giving multiplied for the sake of the kingdom. And that word multiply that he uses in 2 Corinthians 9.10 is so huge. Here's the deal this morning. I remember learning this when I was a young teenager in high school. And I was taught to give regularly and faithfully. And yes, I the 10% and then it went up from there. And I learned that when I was a young guy. And I've seen that happen in my own life where it defied logic for why I should continue giving and why I should continue sharing. It defied logic and reason to do some of the things God has led me to do in my personal life with Jesus. And there are testimonies in this room that could be told 10 times, 20 times over. But the truth is this. God sees what you can't see, and He's going to stretch your money far more than you ever thought He could. And so trust Him with it. Don't be like the rich fool. 
You say, well, I'm not rich. Well, you could be a poor fool. <laughs> there are fools among all ladders, uh, rungs on the ladders of socioeconomics. He stretches your money more than you know. Here's the conclusion this morning. Let's enjoy and use temporal possessions as eternal people. Let's enjoy and use temporal possessions as eternal people. I want to close with this thought because there's another person in the room that I don't think I've addressed this morning. And it's this person. It's the person who gives. It's the person who probably thinks he's not making a God out of money. Maybe he's single. Maybe he's a family guy. Maybe, maybe he's a single woman. Maybe she's a single woman. You just never want to spend money on anything. You're so frugal. And you've gone past being wise. You've gone past preparing. And you just hoard. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.17, not to set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but enjoy them as gifts from God. Christian, yes, we need to be wise. Yes, we save well. Yes, we spend well. Yes, we give well. It is a God-honoring thing to take the resources that He's given to you in the midst of doing all those things and enjoying life. Buying things that you enjoy. Doing things with friends and family that you enjoy. That is not in opposition to glorifying God when all those other things are in place. And so God may be speaking to you today and saying, stop being such a cheapskate and enjoy life with the possessions I've entrusted to you, with the people I've blessed you with. And that'll honor me too. You've got to find out and figure out in your heart where this message hits you today. But can I encourage you that as we get ready to respond, would you respond to God? Would you let Him zing you and prick you where you need to be pricked today? And then I pray that we'll be a congregation that just honors God with the way we work, the way we spend, the way we save, and the way we give. Father, I pray today that that would be true in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would break us from our love of money. I pray that you would help us have a right attitude towards it. I pray that we would be wise with what you've given us. But I also pray that we would even test you in what you've given us. And in faith that we would trust you. That we would give lavishly. That we would, that we would save wisely. That we would spend wisely. And that we would give a model to our family, our friends, our neighbors. Of how you turn our finances upside down for your kingdom purposes. And I also pray boldly today, Father that you would continue to bless lavishly every member of Mill City Church, 
every regular attender of Mill City Church, would you bless us and bless us indeed. Lavish us with your blessings so that we may be provided for and so that we may give lavishly towards your gospel causes. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.